0: There's a culture war going on in this country. We can no longer remain silent on the issues that affect us all. Decisions we make now will determine our future. But how do we engage with the culture in a way that honors Jesus? How do we rise above the noise to know what is right and what is true? It's time to bring God back into the conversation. It's time to reconnect. Here's Carmen.
1: Welcome, friends. I'm Carmen Laburge, and this is The Reconnect, where we're putting God in his place, back where he belongs, right in the middle of every conversation. So how do we do that? How do we enter into the conversations of the day as ambassadors of Jesus Christ? How do we speak the mind of Christ on the matters of the day? Let's face it, people don't need just another piece of our mind, but they do very much need the peace of the mind of Christ. So I think you're just the person to give it to them. We invite you to uh, visit us online at reconnectwithcarmen.com. You can also text the word reconnect to 22828. Text the word reconnect to 22828. If you follow the prompts, we will get you on our email list and send you resources, podcasts, right to your inbox so you can share the show with others. We have lots of information at our website and on our Facebook page. And you can always communicate with me on Twitter. I'm at Carmen LaBerge. All right, friends, it's jam-packed hour today, so here we go. We're going to lead off with the big news that's leading off every news program today and conversation, and that is the FBI director's firing. All right, it may not be um, a complete surprise to anyone who has sort of tracked the credibility of the FBI director over the last couple of years, But I think that in terms of timing, it's quite a shock to everyone. And certainly the reasoning being offered by the White House is raising alarms in many quarters. So uh, I think it's important to remember that the Democrats and those on the left certainly wanted Comey fired when they viewed his actions in the days leading up to the 2016 U.S. presidential election as helping Donald Trump prevail uh, over their preferred candidate, Hillary Clinton. However, since the FBI's investigation into potential collusion of Trump associates with Russia intensifies, some are seeing the timing of Comey's dismissal as suspect. All right, so everybody is talking about this um, from political angles. I want us to keep in mind that we are the people who bring the distinctively Christian worldview to bear in every conversation. So in any environment that you are in, If the conversation is about someone being fired and that person is not present in the conversation, you as a Christian are immediately thinking that the conversation is what? The conversation is gossip at some level. All right, so I do want to be quick to say that when we are talking about an individual and their experience, the very traumatic experience of being fired, and not just fired, but fired publicly And fired in a way that, you know, wasn't a, hey, my friend, come into my office. You have served your country well. However, um, you know, there's a period of time during which your credibility and the credibility of the FBI has been plummeting. And, dude, I got to tell you, it's time for you to go. That's not what happened. Jim Comey was in California delivering a speech on behalf of the FBI. Uh, He was on stage. And um, and he was delivered. I mean, he wasn't delivered this letter on stage, but I mean, literally he was handed a letter. And the letter said this. Dear Director Comey, I have received the attached letters from the attorney general and deputy attorney general of the United States recommending your dismissal as the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigations. I have accepted their recommendation and you are hereby terminated and removed from office effective immediately. Now, I don't know if you've ever been terminated. I got to tell you, if you've ever been terminated, that's as far as you get in the letter. It doesn't matter what the person writes after that. It doesn't matter how what niceties they include. It doesn't matter how friendly the salutation at the end. Once you have read the sentence, you are hereby terminated and removed from office effective immediately. The, the, the pit drops totally out of your stomach. And um, fear and humiliation uh, overwhelm you. And James Comey then had to have the conversation with those who were with him, who were traveling with him in California on behalf of the FBI, about whether or not he was even allowed to fly back to D.C. on the FBI's airplane, or whether or not he had to go buy a commercial seat. That's that's what terminated immediately means. Now, he was ultimately allowed back on the airplane to fly back home and clear out his office. But here's the conversation that from a Christian worldview we need to have. Credibility matters, truth matters, integrity matters. Um, Are there reasonable questions for people to be raising about the credibility of the FBI? And are there reasonable questions now for people to be asking about the integrity of the FBI's investigation related to Russia's interference in the US presidential election? All of these conversations are going, to be, are going to be the ones that unfold over the course of time as the president uh, nominates the successor uh, to this position. Okay, that's going to be a critical conversation going forward. As Christians, I do think that the conversation also needs to include a time of uh, reminding those around us that a person lost their job. And for a lot of us, our identity is wound up in what we do. What you and I know of James Comey is that he, is a, he filled a functional position as director of the FBI. Now, that, that does not mean that that is who he is, but if you have ever lost your job, you know that the loss of a job for, for men in our culture and for a growing percentage of women in our culture is a sense of a loss of identity as well. So I want us to have a heart of compassion today for this individual who lost his job. And I want you to reach out maybe to other people who you know are, are without a job, people who have been fired. This is how the conversation on the national level becomes a conversation over coffee in your own community. We could have endless speculation about why James Comey was fired and under what conditions and about the timing, but all of those things are going to actually be worked out over time. And you and I have little influence over all of that. What do we have influence over? We have influence over the conversations that we're having in our own communities and over our own kitchen tables today. So let me just ask you, have you ever been fired? How did it feel? Does that change at all um, how you would consider approaching a conversation about James Comey losing his job? Have you ever been fired publicly? Have you ever been the person who fired someone else? How did that feel? I actually had a conversation, I don't know, it might have just been last week, on the question of like uh, being fireable. And so uh, there are people out there who are apparently not fireable. I got to tell you, that's a limited number of people in terms of my knowledge base. Pretty much everybody that I know is in a position where they are fireable. And so um, we are not what we do. We are certainly human beings. We are not human doings but our vocations do matter to us. And so I just wanna lift that up uh, in terms of a part of this larger conversation uh, that we're having today. All right, no big surprise to anybody. Uh, that we live in a divided world, and we have competing ideas not only in politics, but we have competing ideas in terms of our worldviews and our approach, um, even to the the big questions of where we come from and who we are and where we're going when all of this is over. So in partnership with Summit Ministries, um, Barna actually conducted a, a study Summit Ministries works, by the way, with older high school students, and so they are interested in knowing sort of like what's happening in the heartbeat of of that generation and what's influencing them in terms of uh, the Christian Christian's view of American culture. So Barna, on behalf of Summit Ministries, conducted a study among people who are actually practicing Christians in America, and they were seeking to gauge how much the tenets of other worldviews, including things like new spirituality, which you might sort of call New Age stuff, secularism, postmodernism, and Marxism, how have those worldviews actually influenced Christians about the way the world uh, is and, and how it ought to be? Well, I got to tell you, the research that, that Barna produced is actually pretty staggering. Um, they would describe it this way. They would describe it as crystallizing, uh, crystallizing an ongoing shift away from Christianity as the basis for a shared worldview in America. Uh, Brooke Hempel, who is the senior vice president of research for Barna, says we have observed and reported on an increasing pluralism, relativism, and moral decline among Americans and even in the church. Nevertheless, she says, it's striking how pervasive some of these beliefs are among people who are actively engaged in the Christian faith. So what are they talking about here? Well, they're talking about the fact that there's a lot of Christians who really aren't. There's a lot of Christians, people who, who would, would describe themselves as Christians, who are actually um, syncretist. They have actually integrated into their own worldview and their own faith practices a lot of other worldviews. And so no surprise then that they produce confusion in terms of their own moral decision making um, and their own approach to uh, other conversations that we're having in the culture. Well, back with us today to talk with us about worldviews and questions that Christians need to be prepared to answer in our conversations with others is Abdu Murray. Abdu is the North American director with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries He's the author of two books. His latest book is Grand Central Question, answering the critical critical concerns of the major worldviews. He's a lawyer by training uh, and education. He's a former Muslim with a powerful testimony about, and God has literally like given him this platform Uh, to speak to diverse international audiences, and I would absolutely encourage you not only to follow him on Twitter, at Abdu Murray, but check him out if he's ever speaking in your area. Abdu, welcome back to The Reconnect.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Carmen. It's a pleasure to be with you
1: so when when you are speaking to diverse crowds, which you do on a regular basis mm-hmm. um, you you recognize what Barna has actually just reported on there is this plurality of worldviews sometimes inhabiting the same person, um, and so this idea this idea that an individual could be identified as only and always operating out of a Christian worldview or only and always operating out of a secular worldview. That's not the that's not the reality of most of the people you encounter. So, what are the kinds of questions that people are asking, and how do we, um, well, and how do you answer those questions?
2: Yeah, and you're absolutely right. That is the observation. Not only does Barna's research bear it out empirically, but I can tell you anecdotally, and across the entire RZIF team, we're seeing this in almost every way, in every shape we go when we go to different venues, college campuses, even churches. Um, as this study, I think, reveals some of the uh, what seems to be shocking, but we've kind of known for a while now, uh, amalgamation of beliefs. Uh, Some of the questions we get, oftentimes even from Christians, is, is there really only one way to God? Um, And is that in some way bigoted, or is that in some way intolerant? And um, uh, oftentimes how I look at this question is, uh, I look at it two ways, really, is uh, if you're saying that it seems wrong for there to be more only one way to God. And I claim there's only one way to God. It's not my opinion you have to contend with. I didn't make that claim. Jesus made that claim. And if you have a beef with someone, your beef should be with him. And ask him what he means when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I didn't make that statement. He made it. So my response then will become this, is that I can say it all day long, but Jesus died and rose from the dead as a matter of historical fact and he can be believed because guys who rise from the dead tend to have credibility. So I listen to him a little more than I listen to the average person. But the other thing to understand here is that our effort sometimes is to say, I want to respect all worldviews and say they're equally valid, and so they all lead to God. But that actually leads us to disrespecting all worldviews, because in saying all roads lead to God, we're actually not paying attention, because not all roads even claim to lead to God. The Buddhist belief, as Buddha himself taught it, was you don't get to go and be in heaven or some kind, or even nirvana. You become extinguished. You become nothing. The Buddhist believes you become one with the impersonal absolute, A Muslim believes you don't get to go to God. You go to a paradise God has created, but God never condescends to actually be with you. It would be considered blasphemous to actually be in God's unmitigated presence. But that's the whole point of what Jesus did for us, is to put us in that presence. So to say they all lead to God in an effort to respect them all, actually disrespect them all, because we're not taking them seriously. And I would never insult someone by saying, you and I believe the same things, and our differences don't matter.
1: Well, and it sounds like when you lift up Buddhism, and when you lift up the image that... Um, or the ideas uh, in terms of heaven related to Islam, um, what you are pointing to is the, the, the very significant distinction of the personal nature of the universe and the personal mm-hmm. nature of the God revealed in the Old and New Testaments and personified in Jesus. So I think that when, when we can get to that place in the conversation, and so I love that where you direct them is you got to deal with Jesus. I mean, ultimately, you got to deal with Jesus and you got to deal with what Jesus did, um, and then you got to deal with what Jesus said. And so I, I totally appreciate that. Where do you start a conversation? Um, and this is a setup for an answer that I know you're going to, yeah, you're not going <laughs> to knock out of the ballpark. So, um, where, where do I start a conversation with a person who I suspect is a non believer, even if they think they're a Christian?
2: Mm. Well, I'd often ask them questions that I think would actually relate to the things that Jesus himself says, or I'd ask them this question. I actually had a conversation just like this, Carmen, when I was sitting down with someone and I said, what does it mean to you to be a Christian? What does it mean to you? Um, and they said, well, it means to do what Jesus did and, teach and and believe what he taught. I said, well, what did he teach? Be good to others and, you know, do unto others as you have been do unto you and treat people well and you'll go to heaven. I'm like, well, that's interesting. Where did he say that? like that. Uh, And so you quickly find out that they're often backpedaling on some of these things. And say, What do you think about when he says this? And I'm going to quote him verbatim now. What do you think of this? And oftentimes you'll find that they disagree with the statement. And then I'd say, well, that's what Jesus said. So if you're saying you're a Christian, which means a little Christ or a Christ follower, and you want to emulate what he says and believes and teaches, then what do you do with the statement? How do you live with a statement like this? um, And see where it goes from there. Because oftentimes I think people are under the misconception that what it means to be Christian is to be a good person or to somehow just, like I said, follow the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, and that's as far as it goes. So oftentimes I think you can dismantle some people, and I think one of the reasons why we need to do this, this may sound shocking, is to get people out of the illusion that they're actually following Christ, because sometimes their allegiance to a label actually blinds them from the gospel. And if we get them off the label and say, I don't think you understand what it means to really embrace the gospel, their eyes open up. And this person I talked to, his eyes opened up, and he's like, oh my goodness, I don't think I've ever been a Christian. And then we had a great conversation afterwards.
1: Yeah, and I think that that aha moment, you know, I think that aha moment is out there for so many people who even have been raised in the church, but they have been sitting under false teaching. They haven't engaged the scriptures for themselves. They don't honestly know um, what Jesus actually said. Um, they know parts and pieces of a story, um, and they know what what others have said about him. And so, again, I think that um, what you bear out is the get people Get people not just talking about Jesus, but get people talking to him by having them interact mm. with you know not only who He is, but what he actually said. Um, and in order right. and in order to do that, we got to engage them with the scriptures, which I think gets us to a conversation about truth. And mm. you know as, as Christians, we we hold up the scriptures as the truth, right? They're, they bear witness to the to the one who is the truth. In a post-truth culture, how do you get people over that hump?
2: That's a very difficult one nowadays, because we used to be a postmodern culture. A postmodern culture said there's no such thing as objective truth, only subjective truths or interpretations. A post-truth culture actually says, no, we acknowledge there is truth. We just don't care. Um, my preferences mm. and my opinions matter more. Now, when you present them with the truth, they look at it and say, that could be true, but I don't care. Um, in fact, um, I'm, I'm, my, the current book I'm writing right now is Clarity in a World of Confusion trades on this very question. How do you offer clarity to a world that seems to love confusion? Because confusion allows us autonomy, doesn't it? I mean, if, if we want to say— Well,
1: that's—when you, you were saying that, you know, people just want to follow their own preferences, I'm thinking to myself, that's self-idolatry. That's autonomy. That's, that's throwing—that's shirking authority. So go ahead.
2: Absolutely. And, it, and it's not—you know, it's funny is it's flowering in our day, but it germinated in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were post-truth people. They actually heard the truth, walked and talked with God in the cool of the day, and then Satan comes along and says, "You can be like God if you eat this." And suddenly, their preference to be like God trumps their recognition of the truth of what God had said. So they had started this whole ball rolling, and we're living in in the sort of aftermath of it now. So I think the way to do this is to point out that autonomy and self worship actually leads to chaos, and we're seeing it in our day, aren't we? I mean, the things that we. We once thought was sacrosanct um, and unmovable, unchangeable. Uh, our very bodies and who we are is now completely up for grabs. But even the ideas of rights, like the idea of First Amendment free speech, where we have the bastions of free speech and the free speech movement, are now the places where it's oppressed um, mm-hmm. in the name of tolerance and autonomy. So uh, autonomy comes from the Greek word, uh, two Greek words, autos meaning self and nomos meaning law. We are a law unto ourselves, and the problem is, and we're seeing it now, is that when I'm a law unto myself, and someone else is a law unto themselves, and my law and their law conflicts, truth is no longer the arbiter between us, because we're in a post-truth culture. Now, what's the arbiter between us is might and power, and that is simply a recipe for disaster. So I think if we uh-huh. point out that grisly aftermath, that possibility, then we can say, now, I'm not talking about autonomy, I'm talking about freedom, and the Bible says freedom is real, but freedom necessarily needs boundaries, not unmitigated chaos, but boundaries. Do you know what true freedom is? And true freedom actually exists in the person of Christ. So if we show the aftermath and the consequences of a post-truth culture, maybe we can get them to see that I don't need to be post-truth, I need to be in the truth.
1: Oh, amen. Hey, friends, the voice you're hearing is Abdu Murray. He's the North American director with Robbie Zacharias International Ministries. You can find them online at RZIM. You can follow Abdu on Twitter at Abdu Murray. Um, And we don't know the title of the forthcoming book, but the one that's out right now is called Grand Central Question, Answering the Critical Concerns of the Major World Views, and it's excellent. So if you want more of what you're hearing, um, go get you some. Um, So I'm going to ask you the the question to the former Muslim. So bear with me here for a minute as I try to walk myself through this. So um, part of the interest, I think, in engaging Muslims in conversations about Jesus is they're not post-truth yet. And so right. there there is the concept of authority, there is the concept of um, of sovereignty it's it 's messed up, but it 's there at least there 's an operating system to engage them in so i 've got a coworker um, who is uh, in in a friendship with a Muslim woman. This Muslim woman is willing to read the scriptures and investigate uh what is said there, particularly about Jesus, who she does recognize as a historical figure. What are some entry points to conversation, and/or what are some flashpoints that my uh, my coworker should be aware of as she enters into these conversations?
2: Oh, I'm glad you asked that question. And in fact, uh, not to uh, to plug the book unnecessarily, but the third section of Grand Central Question actually deals with the flashpoints, um, and specifically how do you engage in the conversation with Muslims about those? Those flashpoints are the Trinity. Does that make any kind of sense? Um, the incarnation of God in Christ, how can the God of the universe be encapsulated in the human body? Uh, the atonement, how does Jesus' death pay for anything? And isn't it an insult to God's greatness, um, which Muslims believe very heavily in, that God himself would die on a cross at the hands of the sinners he created? And then, of course, the validity of the Bible. So Trinity, incarnation, cross, and the validity of the Bible. These are the flashpoints. I think the entry points to get into those discussions is actually to say, what does the Muslim actually care about? So if your coworker is talking to somebody who's from a Muslim background, they actually do have this sense of authority, as you rightly pointed out. And that is, who is God, and He is the sovereign. Now, what they believe fundamentally, and everyone's heard this phrase, Allahu Akbar. We all heard this phrase, and we've all seen it on the news, and usually when we hear it, something bad happens. The reality, though, is that most Muslims say Allahu Akbar, which literally means God is greater, all the time. It's a prayer and a praise. If they get good news or bad news, they say, Allahu Akbar, God is greater than my circumstances, or God is so great, look how he's blessed me. It's the fundamental doctrine of all Islam, God's greatness. I think when we ask our our Muslim friends the question, what does it mean for you to actually think God is great? What would a great God be like? He would be an uncreated being. He would be a self-sustained being. He would be a being who needs nothing to be who he is. Now, that's a great entry point into the Trinity, because my question follow-up to that is this. If God is great, uncreated, and needs nothing to be who He is, but God is also relational, as Islam, as He says He is, then who was God relating to when there was nothing but Himself? He needed Mm. to create something else in order to be who He is. And a God who needs something can't possibly be the greatest possible being. The Trinity fixes that. The idea or the belief and the truth that God is one in his nature and three in his persons Father, Son, Holy Spirit, existing in eternal community, means that God never lacks relationship. He defines relationship, and so he never needs anything to be who he is. If you want to believe in a God who is truly great, the triune God is the God you ought to believe in. So what you're doing is you're affirming the search that the Muslim has for a God who is great, but you're telling them that search is found and culminates in the gospel.
1: Oh, I love it. Abdu Murray, thank you so much for being with us on The Reconnect. I'll see you next week at the Colson Center's Wilberforce Weekend. Have a great day. Hey friends, we'll be right back in just a minute. You can visit me online at com. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is The Reconnect, where we're putting God in his place, back where he belongs, right in the middle of every conversation. So we're talking about what people are talking about, and we're equipping you to be an ambassador of the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. We invite you to connect with us online at reconnectwithcarmen.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can let us know what you're thinking about. I'm on Twitter, at Carmen LaBerge. Hey, while you're at the website, sign up for our email list. You'll receive timely, equipping resources that are designed to help you Reconnect the eternal with the everyday and bring God back into the conversation in ways that honor Jesus. The website again is reconnectwithcarmen.com. So just a few days ago, I read a USA Today article about how technology has changed us. Now, you and I actually probably don't need this list, but I actually thought some things on this list were kind of illustrative of just how much technology has changed the reality of our lives Um, remember when you had to like actually use a phone book, I had a guest the other day referred to the yellow pages and then he sort of caught himself and is like, don't really know if people remember the yellow pages. Um. Uh, the list also includes like the idea of making mixtapes, which in conversations with teenagers has been interesting. There's a resurgence of conversation related to mixtapes because of the Netflix original series, 13 Reasons Why, which continues to be of concern to us, and we've got equipping resources for you as Christian parents dealing with that um, on our website. So just want to highlight that um, for you today. Um, on the list, remember when you watched shows when they broadcast live? Now people don't do that. They DVR what they want to watch, or they binge watch what they want to watch on Netflix. Remember having to look up the spelling of a word in a dictionary? Yeah, now we just Google it. How about using a phone book, phone booth, or carrying enough change to make a phone call? I don't even know if you carried around change today, whether or not that would even work. All right, friends. So how how to help us engage in this conversation about technology and specifically to talk about how our phones are changing us. Today we have with us Tony Reinke. He's the senior writer for Desiring God uh, and a book editor for Desiring God as well. He's the host of the popular Ask Pastor John. He's the author of several books. His latest is 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. You can find him at TonyReinke.com or you can follow him on Twitter at Tony, and I'm going to spell his last name, R-E-I-N-K-E. Tony, welcome to The Reconnect.
3: Carmen, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.
1: Hey, let's just jump in with the concept of a theology of technology. What does that even mean?
3: Oh, my, that's a big, big topic. And uh, you know, I start the book with that topic because for me it's really helpful and it, it, I think it 's really essential for Christians to understand where technology comes from, uh, not as something that somehow got imported here by aliens from Mars, but that it 's actually something that uh, is organically pulled out of god 's creation and so God puts in uh, in place certain natural laws and he He puts in certain uh, natural um, raw materials uh, based upon uh, the amount that he wants in in the soil, in the air, he has a, a certain proportion that he gives us. And then based upon that, then, we as his image bearers can then create, we can innovate, we can make things, we can make textiles and clothes, and we can make war instruments, and we can make uh, musical instruments, and we can make agricultural instruments. That doesn't mean everything that we make is good or righteous or holy. It just means that God, in his sovereignty, um, is able to then be over all of our technological advance. So there's a very close relationship uh, in in my understanding of technology between the Creator, His creation, and then us as His image-bearers who then take the raw materials He's given us, the natural laws He's given us, and then we innovate uh, and image Him in that. Again, not to baptize every technology that we make but just to say that God is sovereign over everything that we make. And it's from that perspective then we can start talking about the the smartphone, the pros and the cons, the beauty of the smartphone, uh, the glory of the smartphone, but also the drawbacks and the dangers of the smartphone. So I think having a broader theology of how technology and creation work together uh, really orients the whole conversation.
1: So I I knew I was going to have this conversation with you, so I thought I would have the conversation in the car on the way to school with a 13-year-old because you know right so I asked her how has having a phone and she does not she she does not have a phone that's very smart um but she does have an i. uh it's not even an i. it's one step up from an ipod but not an iphone so it's that middle one so she's got yeah. a couple of apps but okay so my question was how has that technology that you're holding in your hand how has that changed your life and so we talked a little bit about that and then I said how has it changed you and that was a different conversation. So I do think you are trying to get us to dig around, not just in how does it help me, but how has it changed me? How, yeah. how is it influencing what's going on in my heart and my head? Um, not just how is it making my life, how is it making things more convenient or faster or frankly, sometimes more frustrating. So tell yeah. us about that. Tell us about the difference between you know, how it changes our life versus how it changes us
3: yeah that 's a really great, great question and uh, you know I think there's been a number of studies now that show that too much time on our phones have a really profound impact on our physical health, even. So things like uh, inactivity and obesity are on the rise. Uh, things like stress and anxiety are on the rise. Uh, sleeplessness is co- more and more common now. A, a, a lot of that is driven by the smartphone and its ubiquity in our lives. Uh, you know, if we can't get to sleep, we grab for our phones at 1 a.m. in the morning, which just, you know, that just makes everything worse. And so uh, our, our smartphones lead to all sorts of consequences, poor posture, sore necks, eye strain, headaches, hypertension, there's a rise in hypertension among teens, Um, new forms of uh, breathing patterns that are just more shallow. So the more focused we become on our phones, the more shallow our breathing gets. So the physical consequences uh, oftentimes go more noticed than the other more subtle things that are happening in our lives. And so you're exactly right. What I'm trying to pinpoint is that underlying this impulsive uh, reach for our phone that we feel all day long are certain cravings and hopes and anxieties and fears and even hidden and secret and uh, anonymous desires that sort of control us from the inside. And so those are the things that animate our thumbs and uh, feed our impulses to grab for our phones. So I think the phone is a unique opportunity for us to see, and it's kind of scary too, in that what our hearts want is what we see on the high-def screen. And so more than anything, the phone is exposing those cravings and hopes and anxieties and fears that we've all lived with, even before the smartphone, but now they're just coming out in a more obvious way.
1: And so this is related to some of this appro- approval seeking related to likes or hearts or streaks versus my getting all of that from God. mm would that be a fair assessment in terms of exactly the impact the impact of my phone on my relationship with God, my devotional time, my discipleship? I'm not going to God to, to you know, get the applause of heaven. I'm looking for likes and, you know, and hearts and smileys. Yeah, talk about that, because I'm not sure exactly. everybody who's listening even mm-hmm. knows how important that is for teenagers.
3: This is essential, and this is essential for parents, too. I mean, I find myself here as well. Um, Somebody asked me recently, like, what's the main takeaway from your book? And I told them, I mean, the main takeaway is something that C.S. Lewis taught me in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, a lot of Christians will be familiar with those. Uh, what Lewis points out in one of his letters is that Satan is constantly trying to get us to feed ourselves on what is what he calls nothing quote-unquote, nothing. Lewis calls it a dreary flickering, a dreary flickering. I mean, if that isn't a phrase for the digital age, I don't know what is. A dreary flickering. And what he says is that Satan wants nothing more than for us to take that dreary flickering, those things in life that won't satisfy our souls and those things that don't actually help us live our calling before God, that is the dreary flickering of the nothingness of what Satan is trying to put into our eyes, trying to allure us with. So when we talk about self-validation, I mean, this is one of the big things that draws us to our phones. Uh, You know, if we get 50 likes on an Instagram post, uh, that, that just feeds this sort of dopamine rush in our lives. And the next day we want more. We want 75 likes on an image, and then 100 likes on an image, and on and on it goes, and we continue to feed ourselves on things that will not satisfy us. It just scratches this itch of approval, and it will never satisfy us in a way that God created us to be satisfied in Him. And so what Lewis is talking about there is this idea that if you look at Luke 10, and you look at what Jesus has to say to us, the two things that we find uh, that root our lives is in, number one, our love of God, our treasuring of God, and our, our finding our joy in Jesus. And on the other hand, in finding our expression of that love in loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so Jesus boils down the ethics of the Christian life pretty simply, like in Luke 10 where he just says that we have two loves that dominate, that drive our, our lives as Christians, that make us flourish, and that is we treasure God, we find joy in Him, and then out of that abundant love, out of that abundant joy, we turn to our neighbor and love them. And so what Lewis is saying is Satan's strategy is to feed us a bunch of nothing, just a buffet of sugary snacks online that don't make us happier that don't give us more joy, and they don't feed the vocations of our lives. We're not actually being more productive. And that, I think, is—if I have to look at my book, I think that's the main takeaway that I personally have taken away from it.
1: All right, folks, you are hearing the voice of Tony Reinke. He's a senior senior writer for Desiring God. We're talking about his latest book, Twelve Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. Uh, You can read other things that Tony is writing at TonyReinke.com. You can follow him on Twitter at TonyReinke, and his last name is spelled R-E-I-N-K-E. All right, so, Tony, um, I think that the word fubbing is something that you need to introduce to our listening audience and the lexicon. um, Hopefully, I'm pronouncing it correctly. Tell us what it is and why it's not just bad in terms of our relationships, but how it's actually training our kids to be like us in a bad way
3: well fubbing are you talking about FOMO or fubbing
1: well you can talk about either fubbing or FOMO I thought fubbing is this is this practice of ignoring my companions in order to be on my phone I don't know what FOMO is so there you go I got to talk about both of them now
3: let's talk about both of them um yeah, so going back to Luke chapter 10, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about that chapter is that the question comes up to Jesus, what, who is my neighbor? What, what does it mean to be a neighbor? And who is looking around myself? Who is my neighbor? And what Jesus there says is he talks about the, uh, the, the, the Sadducee and, and the, um, the Levite and the priest, so you have you have different characters involved here, and what Jesus is trying to show in summary form is he 's trying to say the, the need that you see right in front of you that 's your neighbor your neighbor is the person who needs you in front of you in your physical presence and so what Jesus is trying to push against is this idea that we can have our minds focused on even good ministry opportunities on people that are remote separated from us off in a distant land separated by space. Um, there's a, there's a calling, an immediate calling on the people that are right around you. And I think if you look at Luke 10, Jesus gives us parameters that are very helpful in the digital age. But yeah, so, so just ignoring people around us is something that is so significant. Um, I think this is why the local church is becoming a, a sort of, uh, A cultural resistance movement in that we go and we belong to a people and we love one another, even though we don't always get along, we don't always agree, but we have to get along and we have to love one another because we're in physical proximity. And that's what the local church represents. And so there's a lot of different ways to look at this idea of um, trying to be isolated when we're around other people. And this idea of trying to be surrounded by our friends when we're all alone. That I think is the false promise that technology offers us. This idea that we can put earbuds in our, in our, in our ears and walk down the street and act as though there are no needs around us. There are no other people around us. It's just me isolated in a crowd on the street. Um, but it also feeds this false idea that I can surround myself when I'm in isolation. And the fact is that God has given us bodies which mark a place and space and time that define who we are, and we cannot escape that embodiment. And we want, we're we not intended to escape that embodiment. So you can go pretty deep in looking at this idea of the obligations that we owe one another in physical proximity. But uh, I think it goes back to, to Luke 10 and what Jesus has to say there about who is my neighbor. My neighbor is the person in physical proximity to me. That has huge ramifications for texting and driving, it has huge ramifications for not being on our phone when we're with family, not being on our phone when we're with people who who we can serve and love. Um, and there's just a lot of different ways to address that. But I've got a whole chapter, uh, several chapters, actually, that that kind of pick up on this idea of escaping flesh and blood, and we can't do mm. it.
1: I love that. All right, folks. The book is Twelve Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. The author is Tony Ranky. You can check it out at TonyRanky.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Tony Ranky. But following him on Twitter and liking what he tweets is really just to glorify God, because <laughs> right. that's Absolutely. what we're seriously. That's what we're doing. It is. It is what we're doing. All right, Tony. Hey, thanks for being with us today on the Reconnect, and uh, we'll we'll be back with you because I think that this is um this is soil that we need to continue to till uh, in yeah. our life together.
3: Lots to talk about, Carmen. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks a lot. All right, friends, this is the point in the show where we go below the fold. We like to lift up stories and make connections that are designed to help you start and engage with others in conversations that initially may not appear to have anything to do with God or be about God at all. But an introduction of eternal principles might actually change the course of a conversation, might give you the opportunity to talk about... uh, Talk about things that people aren't yet talking about, right? So how do you bring God back into the conversation? That's really what this section of the show is all about. So you are listening to the radio or you're listening to this as a podcast and you know that the airways are full right now of ads. Ads for chocolate dipped berries, ads for gold dipped roses, services that will convert your old films and pictures to digital format, genetic testing kits to expose all the secrets of your mother's DNA profile. Because why? Because Mother's Day is this weekend so what are you getting for mom that seems to be the big question what are you getting for mom what are you getting for grandma what are you getting for stepmom what are you getting for your godmother what are you getting for every other woman who has shepherded your heart as a child of god Uh, all right you might consider all kinds of things let me just encourage you to and suggest to you that you actually give back to those women whether or not they're biologically your mom or not give back to those women the most important things that they have given you which are not things at all. I'm gonna encourage you to write a letter. Write a letter that expresses the valuable character qualities that that woman has bestowed in your life. The inheritance that you have being, uh, being a person who has been influenced by this woman because that's actually what being a mom is. Yeah, there's genetic moms, and yeah, there's other kinds of moms, and when Jesus talks about who are my mother and my brothers, He is pretty clear it's those who are doing the will of God. So as you encounter women who matter to you in the world and women who have brought you along to be the person you are, you can actually credit multiple ones of them with being your mother. When I was a little tiny person... I am really appreciative that my parents were not offended when at night I would pray for my mom and dad and for my other mom and dad and for my other mom and dad. Now, my mom and dad were my biological parents and they raised me. So who in the world was I talking about? Well, I was talking about Letha and Wilbur who lived down the street from us and whose house I stayed at until my mom or my dad got home from work. And I was talking about um, uh, Julie and Gay Oliver, who were my godparents, who lived across town, but who I saw very, very frequently. And I referred to all of these people in prayer before God um, as my mom and dad. Why? Because I probably didn't exactly know their names. Right? So... Um, I'm wondering if you have an expansive view this week and this weekend of who are your mothers and your brothers. All right, so taking a Jesus viewpoint here of who are my mother and my brothers. Why do that? Well, I think that it gives back to people something um, spiritual instead of hanging it all on biology. Because I gotta tell you, biology can't bear the weight of motherhood. It just can't. And there are so many women um, in the world today who who are not biological moms, or who have who are living right now with the grief of having sacrificed their children on the altar of abortion, um, who are living with the reality of having given up kids to adoption. There's adoptive moms who still are having a struggle understanding um, their place even in these conversations because we as a culture ask dumb questions like which one of these kids is your real kid? Okay, that's our fault as a culture. So we gotta figure out how to esteem motherhood in a, in a spiritual sense this week. Now, yes, absolutely honor your biological mother. If she is a person who is still around in the world, shout out to my mom right now. I intend to honor you on Mother's Day. But I want us to be honoring mothers in our culture in a much wider way. And I want for us in the church to have an understanding of motherhood that's really born of what it looks like uh, to be a people who who do the will of the Father. Who are my mother and my brothers? Those who do the will of the Father. That's it, that's the definition. So um, yes, I want us to a- affirm Christian moms, Absolutely. Um, But I also want us to be affirming our moms, those who are Christians, as our sisters in Christ, right? Because if your mom is a Christian, she's not just your mom. She's your sister in Christ. And there's a value-laden relationship there that's different than just uh, genetic biology, And if your family has a Christian heritage, I want you to affirm the blessing of being in a family that knows Christ from generation to generation. Invite your mom into the process of discipling the next generation. Like, this is an opportunity to not just celebrate, you know, genetics. This is actually an opportunity to celebrate those women who are fostering within us the faith. So, I want you to imagine for a moment what kind of letter jesus might have sent to his mother on mother's day like let's just imagine that for a moment and then i want you to consider writing that kind of letter to your mom what does it look like for jesus to write a letter to his mother on mother's day you know something along the lines of mom first of all doesn't that just seem like crazy that right jesus would address a letter to mom like yes but he had a mom all right mom thank you for your willingness to bear me into the world Thank you for your willingness to raise me in the faith. Thank you for your faithfulness to God. Thank you for the sacrifices you made for me. Thank you for, in his case, following me to the cross. Thank you for never stifling me, never uh, never keeping me from pursuing my calling. I mean, imagine what Mary went through in the course of her life as the mother of Jesus. And then imagine what your mom has gone through in the course of raising you. Whatever spiritual mom it is that you need to write this kind of letter to, because it might not be your biological mom. It might be a stepmom. It might be a foster mom. It might be a Sunday school teacher. It might be a lady down the street. It might be your next door neighbor's mom. Like, I don't know who the person is that deserves this kind of letter, but there's a woman in your life who has fostered your faith. There's a woman in your life who is your mother in terms of the faith that you enjoy in Jesus Christ. Imagine Jesus writing to his mom, hey, remember when I was 12? And there's that, you know, we, we we went as a family together to Jerusalem and I went to the temple and you didn't really know where I was and you actually, you know, with all of our giant tribal family, you started back home and it was like, you know, three days because I might've been camping out with the boys and I realized that it was three days before you kind of missed me, which is okay. Okay. But remember when you came back, you know, thank you for searching me out. And then thank you for not punishing me. (laughs) Right. Like, I just want to say to uh, to people out there, there's probably an experience in your adolescence that you owe your mom some gratitude about. I don't I mean, there is for me. I was in seventh grade. I owe my mom every year explanations for and gratitude about my being a seventh grader. I was horrid. All right. Um, when Jesus was in ministry, there, there were times that his mother was genuinely concerned about his welfare, about the mental status of his health. And, and so in his letter to his mom on mother's day, he's probably unpacking some of that. You know, thank you for being so concerned that you came to look for me. And then thank you for trusting that, you know what, I know who I am and what I'm doing at this stage of life. All right. And then in Jesus' letter, obviously this is not a letter you and I could write, but, you know, he's the resurrected Lord. He can do anything. So I'm imagining in in my letter from Jesus to his mom, there's this walk-off sentence about thank you for taking John as your son and thank you for allowing John to take you as his mother because this is the kind of family I'm knitting together through my blood shed on the cross. I'm knitting together an eternal family of faith and these are my mother and my brothers, those who do the will of God will enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, friends, that's all we got time for today here on The Reconnect. Visit me online at reconnectwithcarmen.com. Sign up for the podcast, donate to the ministry, share today's show with someone new. Have a great day and God bless.
0: The Reconnect is brought to you by the Presbyterian Lay Committee. To continue the conversation and become part of the Reconnect community, visit ReconnectWithCarmen.com